They are describing that effect as though it's a reality, as though they slipped into another dimension. But that's a delusion. <laughs> you are taking a drug that is changing your perception of time. But like most delusions, you believe this is happening. <laughs> you believe this is real. I'm Greg Rennie. And I'm Rob Reeford. And this is Mind Body Matters. Welcome to Mind Body Matters. Hello, listeners. As you know, Rob and I, my producer Rob Reeford and I, talk about the mind and body and the mind-body connection. Are you connected today, Rob? You look a little under the weather. Okay, I am being truthful. I am a little under the weather. So my mind-body connection <laughs> um, may not be connected as well as it should be today. So because your body physically isn't feeling well, your mind may not be there. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm saying. More than usual. Yes. But uh, do you remember back in the days when, uh, you know, on David Letterman or Johnny Carson, they had regular guests come in. What do you call them? A zoologist or whatever. But a guy would come in with, you know, animals from the zoo and as regular guests on the show. We have a doctor and uh, I like to call him the good doctor. He's a great guy. And every time he's on our podcast, I leave with a smile on my face because uh, I like this guy. It's uh, Dr. Robert Shepard. He's our guest today on the show. Yeah, yeah. So the new series is called Dr. Robert, as we've uh, mentioned before. But for those of you that might not know, he's talked about the fake science that's out there, as well as he talked about Big Pharma expressing his opinion, but showing more detail about the pros and cons of something. In the past, there have been court psychologists, and a court psychologist Mm -hmm. is almost kind of like what Dr. Robert is. We bring him in, he goes up on the stand, and we ask him questions, and he provides his professional opinion about the information. And the interesting thing is, is that if you remember Dr. Phil, the Dr. Phil show, Phil McGraw, (laughs) he was a court psychologist before he had a TV show. So he kind of provided the same thing, and... Mm -hmm. Dr. Robert, who I kind of like a little bit more than Dr. Phil. I mean, I got to say, our Dr. Robert has a very appealing, calm voice, don't you think? Well, every time he's been on the show, like I said, I leave leave those interviews with a smile on my face because I feel I got something out of it, and he has a way of explaining things, and that's what makes him a great guest on our show. Absolutely, absolutely, and I'm really looking forward to this interview. Because we're going to uh, look at our two previous interviews. One was with Drew Banke, who oh, yes. shared with us his experience about ayahuasca. And that was on a spiritual mm-hmm. side, let's say. Mm-hmm. Then we interviewed Alice Grasset. Alice, her experience with psychedelics, in that case, it was about psilocybin, magic mushrooms. Mm-hmm. Her experience was a little bit different because different type of person, you know, personality, but she was going into her clinical trial regarding the clinical use of magic mushrooms because she was diagnosed with breast cancer and she had a tremendous Mm -hmm. fear of reoccurrence. She walked away from Mm -hmm. this clinical trial of using a heavy dose of psilocybin with less fear about cancer and she was happier. Lately, because of the interviews that we've had in their experiences, I'm leaning more towards, which is unusual for a therapist, is being a believer. So I'm going to ask Dr. Robert a couple of questions, and I'm interested 
So now, even from your point of view, you're going to be producing the the show. And when we come back, we always talk about the interview. Yeah. Is has your opinion yep. changed? Has my opinion changed? I look forward to what he has to yeah. say today. Yeah. So we're going to talk about psilocybin, magic mushrooms, and we're going to talk about ayahuasca. And we're going to talk about uh, the whole uh, trend of the use of psychedelics. Here's Dr. Robert on Mind Body Matters. back. Thank you very much for coming back on the show, Dr. Robert. It's a pleasure to be back. (laughs) (laughs) We had a really good chat not too long ago about fake science, and we also talked about big pharma. Yeah, and really enjoyable conversations. And interesting. Obviously, I, I get really passionate about these topics, so it will be a lot of fun to pick some favorites to work on in the coming months. This is like the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, you know, his regular guest. So, yeah, Dr. Robert is going to be our regular guest. Yeah, well, we'll we'll need to get a comedy writer, though. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps. I'm not good at the zingers. (laughs) Uh, As we did with Big Pharma, for example, right, you know, we had an episode where it was nice to have you on because it gave us a different perspective from a psychologist, right? Because I think even some of the questions I asked about doctors, I said, you know, as a psychologist, how do you explain how and why doctors would fall into the trap of this marketing with big pharma? Mm-hmm. And you, ex- you explained it very well, is they feel indebted. Yes. The topic today about psilocybin and ketamine and all these things have been in the media lately. And as you shared before, we um, we came into the studio that there's some journal articles. Uh, healthcare professionals are talking about psychedelics as well. Really interested to know that as the media started talking about this, social media started talking about plant medicines that you and I would know as therapists were kind of like a bad thing especially for people that have serious mental health issues. Yes. If they would say, hey, uh, Dr. Robert, I'm doing shrooms, you know, I'm doing magic mushrooms, psilocybin. Then we go, whoa, okay, wait a minute here. Yeah. How can we get our head around that it's a good thing now? I do find that to be an enormous challenge. And, And particularly, well, more recently, we've been hearing a lot and should be hearing a lot about problems of of say, for example, housing in the community and and the disenfranchised, the, and particularly individuals with with drug abuse problems who are on the street, and uh, knowing that population and how badly they do using these substances and how it it worsens their condition in ways that are d- difficult to describe, just very profoundly. Uh, yeah, I, it's it's really hard to reconcile uh, this the the claims that are being made now, and the uh, the pace at which publications are be, are being put out and that regulations are beginning to change. It's it's astonishing how quickly the the terrain is is shifting. 
interviewing the guest, Alice, who had her experience with psilocybin. And then the other episode was with Drew Banke, who had his experience with ayahuasca. Mm -hmm. I'm a bit of a convert, but there's part of me that is going, well, like definitely in the last year, everyone's talking about it and it's going very, very, very fast, the legalization of certain medications. I, I think we're at a point in 2024 regarding ketamine and MDMA. Are we going too fast from from your standpoint as a psychologist? You know, it's uh, I, I would encourage your listeners, if they haven't listened to the interviews uh, with Drew and Alice, that really worth a listen, uh, because I have to say I was really shaken and, and surprised by what I was hearing. And uh, it, it had me questioning my own stance, which is one of caution would be an understatement. <laughs> I was, I, I'm, I'm feeling I'm, I'm actually I, I think the best word would be very skeptical about what's happening and listening to their enthusiasm and the, the positive shift in their life that has happened. It really rattled me in terms of saying, Rob, are, are you being a stick in the mud here? You know, are, it, it had me doubting my position uh, f for a bit. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and then, and then I, I needed to think about it. I needed to really process what I was listening to, because there was something niggling in the back of my head in both of those interviews to say, there's something going on here. As a therapist, it, it was really intriguing me, aside from all the, you know, my preoccupation with research and validation and and reliability of information and so on. There was something about the process that was being described that was really baffling and intriguing me as a therapist. So that's what I'm really excited about talking about today. What really struck me is when they describe their experiences and it doesn't sound like they're faking it. It doesn't sound like, you know, they're embellishing for the sake of being on a podcast. I, I was convinced that they had this experience. So I'm not quite sure what kind of experience they had. But you can't get past the fact that both of them said that this helped them in a way of understanding cancer, for example, with Alice, understanding the, the fear of recurrence for cancer. And for for Drew, it was, you know, he he found a spirituality. So in some ways, when it comes to therapy is that, you know, what may work for one client may not work for another, but it kind of sounded like they're benefiting from it. They see life differently and they feel better. Well, this is where things get get very uh, tricky in terms of the, the use of these substances. Mm -hmm. And and it gets at some of the fundament some fundamental problems with the research that's being done, and that is these effects that we're observing. We can't attribute them to the use of these substances based on the the available research. That hmm. there are other reasons why these individuals may be getting better, uh, very compelling reasons why they may be getting better or feeling better that aren't being talked about in this literature or in this in, in these studies that that are being glossed over but there are there are other explanations so i'm not disputing that uh, either of these people felt better 
there's no disputing that. <laughs> They're claiming it would be absurd to be, for me to say, oh, you know, this is baloney. Uh, no, I, it, it, clearly they experienced something, a change, and a positive one. Um, now, in the case of Drew, um, the, the change was was pretty radical, and and there's some questions about <laughs> maybe some questions that some listeners might have about about what's really going on there. But you know, Alice's they're, they're kind of polar opposites. Drew would be your classic uh, psychedelic experience. Wow, you got to do this too. Like it's it changes your life, man. Uh, whereas Alice is this grounded. Uh, thoughtful woman who's had a life experience that many people can probably can can relate to other you know other listeners would be able to relate like listeners or relate to either of these people but alice is it's a completely different perspective but in both cases there is a similarity here in that this could well have happened for other reasons. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example with Alice because it's it's really comes to mind. Alice in the interview describes her experience going through the process in quite a lot of detail. It's very helpful because this is a problem with psychedelic assisted assisted therapies is they they often are a little sketchy about describing what exactly is the therapy like what are they doing here and it's a major criticism of the work is that if you look at the different studies they're all doing different things they what they consider to be therapy uh is is not clear and uh and that's a real problem when you're doing research because, assumedly, this is well, it's psychedelic assisted therapy. It's assisted therapy. The therapy is the thing that's going on here. And when you're not defining what the therapy is, that makes it really hard in terms of what's called replication, and which is fundamental to good research: is can you replicate? Can you do it over again and get the same results? But if you're not de- defining what the therapy is, that's an impossible task. You're, you're, you just, if each time somebody's doing something different. Um, but in the in the present case, what we do know, Alice describes a process. And all I will say is that although she's, uh, you know, we didn't get a lot of detail on what was said in precisely or, or the kind of uh, therapeutic techniques, it added up, I did the math, and it added up to about 16 hours of therapy. Wow. Over the course of a little over, around 10 days. And I don't know if your listeners are aware, but that is the average course of psychotherapy. Uh, that's the length of the average course. When I see my clients, 12 to 16 sessions is, is, is the average course of effective therapy when I'm doing a validated therapy, when I'm yeah. doing a, a, a procedure to address a specific problem. Never thought of that. Yeah. And so... That is a problem, okay? Because for her particular problem, uh, and then and here I'm speaking, you know, as a cold, hard, uh, validation-minded therapist, she could have done better. <laughs> um, she could have saved herself a ton of money and time because, for example, for, for moderate PTSD, there's a therapy called writing exposure therapy. It takes approximately four or five sessions and it gets modest results 
gets pretty good, mm. you know, a, a, a goodly number of people who do that, this simple procedure, it's in a type of exposure therapy, feel better. And that's four or five hours compared to 16 hours, plus a, a, a very expensive clinic with sound and, you know, everything else. I mean, I don't, the, the co- there's a lot of money behind this this process in terms of the process but the, the real issue though that i the point i w- would like to make and it, and it's easy to wash over it when we're hearing individual accounts and with a lot of enthusiasm is as a person going through this process i am going to be swept away by the attention i'm getting and the input i'm getting i'm getting a lot of care it, it's intensive there's a lot of uh, compassionate care involved. There are uh, powerful relationships. And uh, Alice, for example, and Andrew uh, allude to this. The people they're working with, they like these people. They have a strong bond with these people. They believe, they have faith in these people. These people are, are real leaders and, and impress them with the plan that they're about to embark on and with the process that they undertake. And we know as therapists that those are the ingredients of effective therapy, more so than any technique. If I have a very positive relationship with the person treating me, if that person is very convincing and believable, and if I can buy into what they're telling me, that is powerful in terms of therapeutic effects, more so than any technique that we know of. So. This research does not account for that effect of the treatment alliance, of, of the, the, the treatment relationship, and all the subtle and not-so-subtle things going on when you're getting therapy. Because they're not formally assessing what that therapy is, and they're not measuring fidelity, which is a term that's very important, again, in psychotherapy research. Uh, fidelity has to do with me saying, okay, we're going to do a particular type of therapy. Let's say it's cognitive behavior therapy, uh, just as another example. We're going to do a study on CBT for sleep problems. Well, that's great. So what exactly are you going to do? And then when the study is complete, assessing, did those therapists do those things? So was the procedure, the process followed? Did they do the therapy? Well, the psychedelic-assisted therapy, that is one of the huge blind spots. They rarely assess, if ever, treatment fidelity. We're not getting information to help us understand what's happening in those sessions. And we know that a lot is happening. If you listen to Alice, for example, you know a lot was happening. She says, you know, that it, it was profound, the the bond, the the confidence she had in the psychologist, the other Dr. Richards. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was the infamous, yeah. Yeah. The infamous Dr. Richards. Uh, yeah. So um so that's that's already touching on a couple of the major problems I have with this work. And these are just a couple of them. There are quite a few problems with this research and the way this work is done. And another one, Drew would be a good example of this, is that these studies recruit 
the people who are already converted, so to speak. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And this is really, really important. If I were to set out to do a study on some uh, a more uh, a more mundane therapy like cognitive behavior therapy, I could be pretty assured that most of my the people volunteering wouldn't know what I was talking about. You know, they they would be curious. They might have heard the term CBT, but they wouldn't really have a clue, and it's they wouldn't have had it before. Uh, but They've been looking some, the reviewer, good reviews have been done that look at the uh, the populations that are being assessed here. And there's, there's a shift here where the people volunteering for these studies are disproportionately familiar with hallucinogenic drugs. So... Um, so they're a, already buying into a, it. A disproportionate number of people who are participating in the studies are previous users of these drugs. And that is a a very, very significant problem in terms of you're getting a group of people that has bias. More importantly, when we're doing a a controlled study, we are using a placebo with a a goodly portion of of the participants, at least usually half the participants, for example, might uh, not get the the substance, but being told that they're getting it. But if I've already done psychedelics, I know what the effect is. I know what it is to to trip out. And so I am going to absolutely know whether I'm getting the placebo or not. There's there's no placebo effect here uh, for those participants. So in, in this case, it's it's a problem because they are not, they are definitely not experiencing the placebo effect in terms of um, the ones who are not getting the substance. The, the people getting it, yes, huge. It magnifies it because they're recognizing what's happening. So they know, wow, I, I'm, I'm in the active group. Right. This is even in a like a, a more mainstream medical study where you're getting, say, an antibiotic. You you can't you're you're not going to be like, oh man, I, I can tell I'm getting the erythromycin. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, I've had this stuff before, and I know what it feels like. That's not what's happening here. Your eyes are open. You know you're in the active group. So that is going to boost your expectations. That's going to increase placebo response. Whereas the group who's not getting the active drug, not only are they not sure, they're pretty damn sure <laughs> that they're not in the, the active drug. Now, think of it. They would. They would. Even if they didn't have experience, they would, they would read something. They would be influenced as to what to expect. So think of this. You're in the study. I want your listeners to do this little imagination trip here. You are going into a study and you think, this is cool. I, I want to try this. You know, I've been having this problem and, and I, I really want to try this and see if it works. And even if you haven't used acid before in your life, for example, it's like, I'm curious, you know, so I want to, I want to give this a try. A lot of people are, would be like that. So you get in here, you get into this study and, and they're so nice to you and you get all this attention and you put on the headphones to listen to the music. You've got somebody sitting beside you and maybe holding your hand, whatever. And then nothing happens. But we know, listening to Alice, that there's quite a process. There's hours. You're sitting there for six or eight hours. Can you imagine being the one who's getting the, the placebo? 
you're lying there <laughs> yeah. realizing, oh, excuse my French, but you know, oh, <laughs> what am I going to do? And this person is sitting beside me, you know, like rocking on, like, like I'm tripping and I'm, <laughs> I'm not like, come on, man, this is, bo- I, this is, that will really dampen any potential placebo effect. I mean, ah. it'll, and in fact, it'll undermine even the alliance, right? Because I've got this person pretending that I'm getting a drug. And that's when I'm in therapy, I need my therapist to be on board and be honest with me, not going through a charade. And these, this process, this doing these experiments, whether it's ketamine, MDMA, or psilocybin, you've got therapists doing a bad act and participants recognizing half these people aren't stupid. They would be recognizing that this is a sham. And that's kind of offensive, to be honest, at, at the very least, really boring and pointless. And you are not going to get any expectations. You're, in fact, you're going to have some negative effects. I'm going to be disappointed. I'm going to be bummed out. I'm, going to, I'm likely to feel worse, not better, at the end of the study. So, And w- what I'm getting from what you're saying, uh, Robert, is that it's not that you're criticizing the experiences that people have. It's just you're seeing something that ain't right with the research studies that that people talk about. Uh, you're finding that that in itself there's a problem, not not just their experience. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, now I do have some things to say about the experience, <laughs> <laughs> but but you're correct, and it's a, an important point. I don't have any issues with the possibility that a person could really enjoy using these substances. I have no question about that. I we I grew up. I had a lot of friends who dropped acid. They, they, Me too. They weren't doing it unwillingly. You know. <laughs> They found some benefit in it recreationally. Yeah, yeah. they they seem to really think, in, it, in fact, so much so that that's all they wanted to do. You know, <laughs> they uh, they were pretty unproductive in my <laughs> among my buddies, and uh, so, but uh, but definitely it was is a positive. So there's no, you know, that's that's not the issue here. Although there is something going on in the type of experience you get with these substances that needs to be talked about and that that both of these uh, that drew and alice both discuss uh and it's fascinating because they each discuss a different perspective a different trip you could say uh right but there are common features to the trip and there are common features though that are being taken as reality and that's what i find really intriguing here in this and in, in the research that's being done and in what the researchers are saying and this gets back to me you know i was a little bit catty or you might have detected a little sarcasm when i referred to the psychologist and his dad you know <laughs> with the infamous <laughs> um the infamous yeah uh, dr richard's progenitor the originator you know Right, because he he was doing work way back in the seventies, yeah. I think, or sixties. Yeah. yeah, it's important to know we're talking. Yeah, doctor, uh, somewhere in there he got a psychology degree somewhere in there, but he actually his main degrees are master of divinity and doctor philosophy and religious studies. Huh. He, he had three different degrees in religious studies, 
he, and a lot of his research was on, and this is something that that um, psychedelic researchers tend to dance around a little bit, but there's a lot of spiritual uh, claims and, and thoughts going on here. And it's infused in, even in the research, the, the expectations. People are expecting they're going to have a religious experience as part of this process. But we know that psychedelics in particular, as by definition, give you mystical-like experiences. But they're, it's, it's a delusion. <laughs> it's really important. Are you saying that what they're going through is they're hallucinating? They're not experiencing something that is tapping into a universal consciousness? This is where it gets really, really fascinating. For this to work, and this is something most researchers in this field will agree on, you have to give a really big dose. Okay, so we're not talking microdosing here. We're not talking a modest dose of LSD or something. We're or, or shrooms. We're talking a big dose. Okay, in order for this to work, and it's stress. That's one of the few details they do provide. It's a big dose. You're getting a massive dose of, <laughs> of hallucinogen, so you're getting a massive trip. And these trips are very consistent. If you look at the literature, there are things we can expect to happen when you trip. For example, time distortion is always occurs. Now, now it's interesting because even listening to Drew and Alice, they are describing that effect as though it's a reality, as though they slipped into another dimension. That's... <laughs> That's that's I'm I'm sorry, but that's a delusion. <laughs> you are you are taking a drug that is changing your perception of time. But like most delusions, you believe this is happening. <laughs> you believe this is real. You believe that time is actually slowing down. Kind of like Alice when she drops in the rabbit hole. I don't know <laughs> in Alice in Wonderland. When Alice is dropping down the rabbit hole. She's watching things happen, and she, she even at one point pulls a book off a shelf and, and starts to read it. <laughs> and, and, you know, and it's kind of trippy, you know, but, but that's, that's a kid's story, you know, and it's, it's absurd. And, uh, but when I'm tripping and having this experience, it feels real. I, I believe that time has changed, that, and, and I believe my conception of time is now different. And that's a lasting effect afterwards. I'm going to have predictable visual phenomena happen. And both these individuals, Drew and Alice, describe them. Um, and interestingly, a lot of them uh, start with some geometric. There's sort of a geometric. And anybody who's <laughs> from our generation, Greg, know from the black light posters <laughs> that we... <laughs> I remember that, them. ...that we grew up with, right? There's the reason why they're... They have these colors and these shapes. Um, it's kind of morphing stuff is because that's a very predictable altered sensorium that's happening, that my visual sense is, is really scrambled, but predictably. Now, but that's not what it feels like to me when I'm having this experience. It feels meaningful. Right? This is, and that's, this is very important in terms of understanding some of the, the way this these drugs can play into our expectations because I'm having shifts happen that are starting to get me to question my very foundation of thinking and my being. And plus, 
we, and we know this from these substances, I'm, I feel special. <laughs> this, is, this is very relevant, again, to placebo effects and expectation and outcomes is that I'm feeling unique. Uh, Drew talks about he's feeling chosen. He's, he's having a conversation with, with God, and, and he's been picked. And, you know, if we were talking about a schizophrenic, we'd be talking about forming him, right? <laughs> I mean, just just to be blunt, you know, but we're, yeah. we're not. Yeah. We're talking about a man who's had a very powerful uh, hallucinogenic experience. Um, but he he's talked to God, and he's got instructions from God um, and purpose in his life now. And we can say, well, okay, that's okay. That's okay. That it's a good thing if he's got a good purpose. What's the problem here? Recently, we had a pilot get into trouble. If anyone wants to look, and it's I believe uh, it was in the, it's been in the papers, but it's been kind of falling into the back pages. Anyway, a flight uh, going across America, I think, to California, <laughs> fittingly. Actually, it was a flight right to hate Ashbury in San Francisco. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> 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 but the context of it is that we had a, um, a an off-duty pilot. He'd been at a funeral for a good friend of his, and he was feeling pretty bummed out. While he was at the funeral, he, in, in true Hollywood fashion, he met with a bunch of friends, and they 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 ate some shrooms okay so he was it's not an untypical thing to uh, get together with the guys and you know some people have the beer they had some shrooms and but at any rate he gets on a plane and he's an off-duty pilot so he gets to sit up in the cockpit with the pilot and the navigator and chat with them but as they're flying along way up in the sky with a plane full of people you know 100 people on the plane he starts to have difficulty discerning whether he's in reality or not, but he feels that there's an urgent situation developing here and he's trapped in a dream. And he needs to get out of the dream. And the only way he knows, as we all know, to get out of a dream is to ditch yourself. That's the best way. So being that he's dreaming about being in an airplane, he decides to ditch the plane. So he, he grabs hold of the lever that shuts the engines off. And of course, the cockpit crew freak out <laughs> and a big tussle ensues and they, they subdue him and tie him. And he's in the process saying, tie me down. You know, he knows something's wrong. So he was caught in after effects of, of using the substance. He believed that what he had to do was what he had. Now, that's not a nice outcome, but that is also quite typical of using these substances. You just want out. Um, it can be very unpleasant. Now, again, these researchers don't talk about it. They use music and all kinds of circumstances to try to prime people so that they have a positive experience. But once you walk out of that study, it's all bets are off. And in terms of your flashback experiences, anything's possible. I don't know about you, but I had plenty of friends who would say to me, uh, in high school, occasionally, oh yeah, uh, things like Rob, oh, your face just melted. <laughs> You're like, what? I'm having a flashback. Oh, yeah. I think oh, I'm yeah. having a flashback, man. Your face yeah, just melted, yeah. man. 
Um, you know, so <laughs> so there there are negative effects. Well, one of Mr. Uh, Richards' original Marsh study, I think it was called. It was it was really controversial back in the early seventies. He had a group of priests and ministers because he's he's in the Catholic faith, and he had a bunch of priests, and he talked them all into doing this study where they would get LSD and have religious experience. And he wrote about, he wrote it up and published it about how they all had really amazing religious experiences and how beneficial that was. What he didn't mention was that one of the participants had to be subdued. He, he, he ran off thinking that he was the second coming and he was going to, he had to, he had to do some important things and he had to be physically restrained. And another of the participants had to be medicated to calm them down. <laughs> and and again, we're talking to the people who are already converted. We're, we're playing to people's preferences. Those, those are huge issues. Uh, the researchers themselves have all taken these substances. That's, that's really a precursor of doing this research. It is for training, too, I understand, for doctors and psychiatrists to provide this service in their training, they have to trip. Yeah. You know, I wish they'd do that to psychiatrists with lithium and with with antipsychotics that might benefit them to understand what it really feels like to take those substances. But they don't. I find that really interesting. Why is it that I should need to go on a trip other than now I am in a position where I've had that trippy experience too, and I'm a believer but what about someone like, well, have you heard Oliver Sacks? Yeah, absolutely. Well-known uh, neuroscientist. As a medical resident, he had free access to all the drugs in the world, and he took them. <laughs> Along with some friends, they, they made a habit of going home at night with loaded up with drugs and, and took them recreationally. What he learned from it was primarily what the brain was capable of. He doesn't extrapolate about mystical experiences. He doesn't talk about revelations about reality. He talks about it in a very practical sense, which I think is the most appropriate, which is to say, it taught me something about how my mind could be altered, how my thinking could be distorted, how, what a delusion is like. And, and in one telling example, he, he wrote about he, he was a history buff, and he was studying, uh, he was engrossed in learning about a particular battle in England at the time as a young guy. He was kind of, you know, these guys who like to reenact things, you know, he, he was kind of into that. And uh, he was sitting in, in a little cubbyhole, and he'd taken a bunch of stuff, and he had a lab coat on a doorknob in front of him, and he was sitting on a chair looking at the lab coat, and he watched the battle unfold in miniature in the folds of the lab coat. And he described how real and time slowed down and all these effects that, 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 these, that clients will experience when they take these substances. But the, the real telling part of the story was that this marked a change in his attitude towards the drugs. Again, not to say, oh, be careful, you'll get into all kinds of trouble, but to say, these drugs alter your sensorium. They alter your perceptions. A delusion is called a delusion for a reason. And just because I have a nice delusion doesn't make it any less unreal. Could I jump in there? Yeah. 
about delusion. Okay, so it's crossing my mind, and I'm sure some of the audience, if they were live with you, would, would challenge. So I'm going to challenge this. Mm-hmm. How do we look at delusion for one person or another when they see that it's their reality? How can we have someone in front of us as therapists, one person has schizophrenia, one person has had a profound experience with psychedelics, the similarity we're seeing mm-hmm. in, a, in a professional way is that both of them have delusion, perhaps psychosis. If you have them side by side, I mean, how can you say that the person that has this profound experience with psychedelics, that they're deluded when we know that delusion is actually a psychiatric problem? Well, I guess, uh, and I really appreciate this question because it's important because there is no difference. There is no difference. Okay. A delusion is a delusion. And just because I have a nice one or a mystical one doesn't make it any more real. Uh, and that's important here. This is very important because the, there is a press among researchers to include spiritual counseling as part of the psychedelic process. And I take grave issue with this in terms of playing into delusions uh, and exacerbating and playing that process out. And fine, you, you, if it's maximizing placebo effects, what's the harm? My point is there are other things we can do that are genuine therapy that will do the job. Alice would have had her insight. She could easily have undergone a short course of acceptance and commitment therapy, for example, because that would have been very appropriate to her situation. Regarding the cancer. She was struggling with having had cancer and having recovered and been a survivor and all kinds of predictable things that happen when we go through that very difficult process. And that many, many countless therapists have helped clients through in, in, in the past and continue to do, um, and can be done very directly and with validated methods and come to that insight. And there's no, we don't need to mess with delusions of spirituality in there. And, you know, Alice isn't, didn't come out of it deluded. She came out with some insight into her process and she went on with her life. And it lasted. That's, that, that's the amazing thing. She said it lasted quite a long time and still does. Okay, Greg. And this is where, again, I'll just make the point. If she had said to you, I had 16 hours of therapy and it helped me to come to terms with my position in life and my goals in life. And I still think about that today. Would that seem so odd? Would that seem so amazing? That would just seem like, well, good for you. Good for you. And that's all I'm saying is that that's what happened. Don't tell me that the psychedelics were the responsible part of that. I may feel that. I, I've had this mystical experience. But, you know, you and I, I've had, a mystic, I've had mystical experiences. I, I fought hard for mine. I practiced Zen for a couple of years and stared at the wall like, man... And, you know, and you're trying to get your nose through the gate, so to speak. And and listening to these individuals and others and the researchers talk about this, I get it because I had that experience, too. 
Would you say that this experience that you had with, you know, hours and hours of meditation, staring at a wall, uh, practicing Zen Buddhism, that you had a delusion or was it some kind of Kensho? Oh, well, <laughs> boy, that's a loaded question. <laughs> because I, I, I know Zen. I, I practice Zen, yeah. too. Now, and this is, this is my own spot, my own experience, and, and also in my life as a therapist, I've come to to under, my understanding is that it was an altered state of mind uh, and that it, I wouldn't distinguish it from if I'd, I could, I might have done it a lot quicker if I'd taken some acid. <laughs> um, again, behind it, that Kensho experience was a very brief experience that faded with over time but left a lasting impression. But the work involved, the amount of work <laughs> that went into the getting there was phenomenal and that gets overlooked right that gets that's that's what i that would be my point is that there was a lot of work and i had an insight yes I, but the can show experience that's just a side effect of the process and i think a lot of buddhists you know, would would agree that that's that's not the point it's not to have this thing and feel like you know i'm buddha and, and now i'm going to come back to earth and join humanity again and, and save the world they just see it as a brain thing that happens as part of the process i have a question for you simply because of some of the episodes we've had and the people we've interviewed we've interviewed people that done a lot of research regarding your death experiences mm -hmm personal experiences they've had when they were clinically dead on an operating table. But also we've had a lot of discussion about reality. Mm -hmm. yeah. What is reality? Yeah. Touching on this whole thing about delusion, if a patient is fr in front of you and describes a reality that they've experienced or are experiencing, who are we to say that that's not right, that it's not real? It's a, a really good question because Therapy is all about testing people's reality and trying to increase people's self-awareness and awareness of what is real and what is not real. And as therapists, I think you'd agree, we, we learn that precious little of our world is reality. <laughs> that, we're, that we are all quite deluded. And I say that I say that about myself as well, that it's been a, a huge eye-opener for me to practice this work and to come to the understanding that I'm, I'm part of that gang, I'm part of the group. I, that this isn't just an issue with clients that are people with, quote, mental health issues, that we all uh, have a remarkable absence of facts in our life. And in fact, that's what makes us human and why we don't need to worry about AI, as a matter of fact, <laughs> just <laughs> as an aside, because an AI is never capable of doing that. That's what makes us really human, is we are so deluded. And it's a, it's a very human thing and a very, well, a very living thing. I don't shy away from challenging people when their view of reality is at odds with what's happening. And it never ceases to amaze me how I continue to have my own delusions <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and misconceptions and, and problematic beliefs uh, that determine a lot of how I feel and a lot of how I behave in ways that I would like to, that I continue trying to change. There's the phrase, perception is reality. Uh, how, how do you see that? What's your perception of that phrase? <laughs> That's a common phrase, you know, what you perceive is 
reality because you are the one that's perceiving it. I I think my my wife would intervene at this point and say, but <laughs> perception is just another illusion. <laughs> we we're we're not seeing half of it. Of course, people taking uh, <laughs> a mind altering drug say, well, they help you see all those things we're not seeing. But the reality is that our senses are very deceptive and that we're only seeing uh, that we see selective pictures that we convince ourselves are reality, but we're seeing mind images of things. And the underlying reality, I, I mean, that's that's for philosophers, <laughs> uh, because there's, um, I guess, what really matters, and then this would be a Zen kind of thing, is that <laughs> what really matters is when I hit my thumb with my hammer, it hurts. <laughs> and that's real enough for me. Okay. Mm, mm-hmm. um, when I say the wrong thing to my wife and she <laughs> is, gets upset with me, that's real enough for me to know that I need to change my behavior. Um, and we can debate what really happened, but there's some practicalities there that we all try to our best to observe. So. It, you know, it looks like a lot of these things are going to be legalized soon. Yeah. Is there a danger? Are we back where we were in the early 70s when Nixon said it was an, a danger and he took all the psychedelics, well, LSD, but I mean, he blanketed everything in, I believe, what they call Schedule 1. They're saying, okay, yes, heroin's a narcotic. That's in that category. So is LSD. So is uh, magic mushrooms. And then it was illegal even to do research on it. So now we're doing research again. We're like the the one episode I had was called Full Circle with Dr. Mm-hmm. Singh. We're going back to that point of the early 70s. Where's the danger? Where's the Nixon? I think the, the cat's out of the bag or the horse is out of the barn on this one at, at this point. I do think that we're going, uh, we have a tremendous disrespect for history, um, and we we tend to look on previous generations as as being pretty boneheaded as a general rule, okay? Uh, You know, and to to give a really extreme example that Drew would would appreciate, for example, we believe the Egyptians must have had help from aliens to do some of the things they did, you know, because, you know, because otherwise they would have had to been really good at math and and all that. And come on, you know, like that's it's one explanation. Yeah, Yeah. we have a a situation here where we are um, (laughs) where we're we're working with something that uh, we have the historical information, but it's cre- it's been twisted into a negative narrative where the, the people who were against this movement back in the 60s and 70s, and it started in the 50s, actually, but all the way to the 70s, You're right. that they were closed-minded, um, that they were repressive, and that people's freedom of choice was being curtailed, and that there was a vast overreaction to some negative things happening, like mass murders and stuff. <laughs> um, and uh, I do think that history is going, going to more or less repeat itself to some extent. We're going to see uh, this research progress, but, but I'm not taking issue with the fact that it can be really interesting experience to do psychedelics or that MDMA isn't a fun party drug, Okay. My issue is that things have not changed as far as we have no better research now than we had then. The research back in the 60s and 70s was terrible. It was poor quality. The controls were awful. 
the conclusions were very dodgy, despite the claims to the contrary um, that you'll read in, in just about every introduction to an article, a modern article on this. The, the research, the reviews of it are, are, are generally agree that it was not good research. And they only started to include controls just as it was clamped down. But the research today is no better. The money side of it is going to take is taking over here, and we have a psychiatric a community of psychiatrists who are desperate for something new to try, because they are being told that they're not being effective enough, and and because the research does suggest that we're we're we're, we're lacking in terms of innovation. So there's a real desperation for tr- something new, and but the research again we have issues around people coming into these studies with huge expectations. We have a process undergoing this research that biases the participants to have extremely positive responses or very negative responses, depending on whether they're getting the drug or not. Researchers who themselves come in with a tremendous bias. If you look at the background of any of these researchers, the vast majority are either being supported by drug sponsorships or they or they own share, own shares of them a lot of them are entrepreneurs who are developing uh, substances for, for commercial use and they're writing these studies okay so there's there's huge problems there in terms of bias in the research so those you know those are are really there are other variables that can account for what's happening in these studies I've alluded to some. The treatment alliance, for for example, is just one, and client expectations is is another. You're probably aware there's a protocol that you go into a room with uh, some, usually one or two other people. They they specify two in a lot of studies, and this is this gets at the the risk. Why do you need two people with you when you're doing psychedelics? Why would you think that would be? necessary like why would you need to that's expensive right you know i don't know the answer but it's interesting because all of the videos i've seen in the descriptions of this psychedelic assisted therapy yeah there's two or three people in the room there seems to be i would imagine a qualified trained person that's a therapist in psychedelics there's a doctor but yeah sometimes two or three people in the room okay now my understanding is that this is coming out of a concern that there be a witness mm, uh-huh. uh, in the same way that say if my uh, if a doctor were seeing a client uh, who'd experienced uh, sexual trauma and it was a male doctor doing a gynecological exam they might want to have the nurse in the room to ensure that the client feels safe and that there's no potential for abuse that is the protocol and in psychedelic research there seems to be this unsaid concern that there could be abuse. Uh, there's a heightened risk of abuse, and and it's real. It's, it's they're doing it. They're not doing it because it, it's just made up. They're, this is why they're doing it. There there's concern. There are valid concerns. When you're taking these substances, you become immensely open to suggestion. Uh, vulnerable. Very vulnerable. So the the people that are involved, the people that are in that room, if it was just one person, it's quite possible that they may influence. And here's something else that's that's quite 
possible that's going to happen. I'm going to feel, well, there's a, a Washington Post uh, a writer uh, talked about it with ketamine, that he had a, a really bad experience. And if you read the article, it's it's really quite striking because he uh, he was in the hole. So he lost a sense, lost a sense of self and he was terrified. And his psychiatrist had to hold his hand. He, he discovered at the end of the session that the psychiatrist had been holding his hand for like four hours. He wasn't aware of it at the time, but the psychiatrist was holding his hand and, and calming him for the time until he kind of came out of, the, of this very bad experience. It, it's not at all unusual for there to be physical contact to help calm a person down or to reassure them. It may just be a squeeze of the hand or a pat or a stroke, but there's physical there can be physical contact or it may be necessary if uh, if things go a little south on me. And so there's enormous risk there. I'm sitting beside a client who's usually not just sitting, they're laying down, and I'm sitting beside them for eight hours, having a conversation, getting to know them, um, maybe reassuring them, calming them, maybe holding their hand briefly. It, this opens a lot of doors for potential abuse. Regardless of how good my intentions are, uh, it, it opens a lot of vulnerabilities. And there's been some articles, there are some articles emerging, and there's and things have already happened. There was a controlled study early on you know, for psychedelics where a couple from BC, the CBC, wrote it up, uh, where they were laying down with the clients, embracing them and and stroking them, and it was and they had video of it, and it's really it makes you uneasy to watch. It's like, what the heck are these people doing? They were they they were kicked out. <laughs> uh, I believe that the psychiatrist might have lost his license to practice over it. it. This is a very good point. Never even thought about it in the interviews or the research I did. You're making a very good point that that's a huge danger. Well, and then again, I'm I'm really pulling on the hard ones, but this is just to be blunt. Are you aware of date rape drugs? Yeah, GHB. And things like ketamine. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I never thought of that. I have heard that in, you know, GHB, ketamine, roofies, they call it. But you're right. I have heard where someone has used ketamine in the same way as other date rape drugs. It's really cheap. It The person is dissociated, and so they don't know what is going on. And the ideal part of ketamine is your memory is impaired. So you don't have good recollection of what happened. Okay, so that's why it's liked for that dubious purpose. A recent case in France, a member of parliament was invited to dinner with a, another member of parliament to discuss a, a passing a, a bill or something. And uh, she noticed that she was feeling really weird after drinking. A, he insisted she have some champagne turned out it was spiked with MDMA and that this is a problem in France right now, that people are slipping MDMA into people's drinks. Because, of course, when you take MDMA, you feel warm and fuzzy, but you also get a bit of a rush and, and heart palpitations, and that had set her into a panic. Unfortunately, she felt so panicked that she left and went to the hospital and got tested. Now this guy is trying to explain why he dropped this powder into her champagne and it's a pretty bad excuse, I can tell you that. So MDMA is being is getting a lot of attention for use in treating post-traumatic stress disorder. 
possibly that it's going to be legalized as a therapy. Wonderful idea, I guess. But you're opening up a huge door in terms of people being extremely vulnerable. When I take MDMA, it's like getting, as a guy, it's like me getting oxytocin, like like a woman pregnant. Um, I, warm fuzzies. I bonding. I love you. I love you, man. That's what I heard from clients is that they they had this sense of enormous love for everyone. And, you know, it was used a lot at raves and and Mm -hmm. clubs for that reason. You know, everyone was just in such a good mood. And I I mean, personal experience, I have a a friend who occasionally does MDMA and and I don't want to be around him when he's (laughs) he's doing it. Now, if I was using it, it'd be different maybe, but I'm not. And so I I just, I get creeped out. (laughs) He's like, it's all... Oh man, it's not it's not the guy I'm used to. He gets all lovey dovey and 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 I don't <laughs> mind people being lovey dovey, but this is not a lovey dovey guy. <laughs> he's like it's just not that's not his normal behavior. So I know he's high when he's doing this, and it, it turns me it turns me off the conversation. Um, but as a therapist, that's a real issue in terms of the power dynamic. Therapy's a relationship. Mm-hmm. But it's a hazardous part of the job. And if we're taking barriers down in that, this is one of the prime areas of complaints in the colleges, in, 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 in psychotherapy, college of psychotherapy, college of psychologists, is sexual improprieties. Major, major, one of the most common sources of complaints from clients. It's a vulnerability. And we're uh, using some substances that heighten that vul- vulnerability. So... And you know, we're all doing our best. Uh, you know, most therapists will be able to respect their boundaries, but it's it's a tricky thing to be playing with. There is one study that was done with ketamine uh, for depression that had a proper placebo. Very unusual study, and this is how it how it took about how they did it. Um, the researcher realized that ketamine is used in surgery as an anesthetic, right? As an anesthetic. Let's give half of the people who are going in for an elective surgery ketamine, and we'll give the other half a different anesthesia agent. Um, the ketamine wasn't the critical part of putting them under. It was just added to the mix. And they told people, we're recruiting and, it's just, and we're looking at the effects of this substance on depression. They were fully expecting that they, they could give the placebo that it would actually work, that people wouldn't know they got the placebo. And would that take away the effect of the ketamine? Would it diminish it? Because everybody's getting something, but nobody, you know, it's just expectations now. Of the people who underwent the surgery, the majority of them felt transformed. They felt, with no therapy in this case, just surgery, they felt their depression improved, and the depression scores on their Hamilton depression inventories uh, de- declined measurably, very comparably to using uh, medication or therapy on all the people, placebo group and ketamine group, which argues that what's going on is almost entirely a placebo effect. The expectations alone explain this. When you give a drug, and give a placebo, and you get the same response for both, that's a placebo response. That's not a drug response. That's a placebo response. So what, what little data we have dribbling out uh, when the placebo is done properly suggests that 
there isn't a drug effect. We're talking about an innovation here. We consider it to be groundbreaking, and it's presented as an area of study and of, of a new drugs that are going to transform psychiatry. And the question I have is, well, if people have, people have been using these substances forever, like for, since the 50s, and I don't know about you, but I have, I have adult friends who still drop acid. One just recently died of alcoholism. Okay. Um, mm, and mm. the other has a drug problem. Okay. Um, but they're both successful business people. They were with one who died was very wealthy man. Use of these substances is associated generally with, with very negative outcomes. You see a lot more addiction in these populations. You see a lot more mood disturbance. You see a lot more psychiatric disturbance and problems. If these are such therapeutic drugs, why is that? Why, I ask, if these are such therapeutic drugs, is the population not self-medicating and should they not all be doing a lot better? Should addicts who use LSD not be over their addictions by now? Because they've all tried it. <laughs> That's an interesting point. I agree. A lot of clients I work with in the treatment uh, centers, it was part of their mix. Oh, but they need the therapy part of it. Well, I've just said the therapy part of it is completely undefined, is completely random. And if we separate it out, this is what we're left with. We're left with what we already know, and that's that they're recreational drugs, sure. And I don't have issues with that. But as therapeutic agents, I have a lot of doubts. Winding down, what crosses my mind is that what do you think that patients should be thinking of doctors should be thinking of, because if it hasn't happened now, it's going to happen very soon. A patient's going to go to a doctor and saying, hey, doc, what do you think about me uh, using one of these plant medicines? And what about, you know, the psychedelics? Because it has all this research and, you know, they think it's wonderful. That question, if it isn't being asked already, it, it, it will be. Yes. What should the doctor be considering when he answers those questions? I would really encourage the doctor to remain true to their training and to provide thoughtful and measured advice based on the facts that they know. And that is that there are a number of therapies that are effective for any number of these problems that their patients come to them with. Cognitive behavior therapy, the tried and true method uh, with very easily defined parameters and and people who have the expertise to deliver those therapies. Acceptance and commitment therapy. Exposure therapy that is profoundly effective for many, many problems. And then we know that exposure therapy is profoundly effective for many problems, more so than drugs in a lot of cases. From the doctor's side, which makes sense, is that you encourage them to rely on the training and, you know, the, the process that they use for everything. <laughs> but the patient uh, that is asking about it, perhaps they should be asking specific questions of their doctor regarding these. Like, what's, what is a, a suggested type of question that they can ask to get the right information? The discussion you really need to have with your doctor is, what is my problem? And can you help me, doctor, in understanding? And is there a, a specific diagnosis or is this outside of the usual diagnosis? Or do I have more than one diagnosis? And once we've ascertained what the diagnosis is, 
So for example, I have, uh, let's say I have clinical depression. Then the question I want to ask my doctor is, well, I've heard of a lot of things, doctor, but I'd like to know what you think is the best treatment. What would you, if you were getting treatment for this, what would you do? And I've mentioned that before, right, in, in previous yes, conversations, right? Yes. So this is another variation on that situation. You want your doctor to give you professional advice based on their role as a physician. And that's going to mean that hopefully they adhere to the facts and base it on the standards of practice that they are up on. <laughs> and, um, and the standards of practice that they're up on should guide you to some validated treatments. It's not an ideal world. You know, a lot of these uh, newer methods are being pushed. There's a reason why they're pushing them for what is called treatment resistant. And if you do look at the literature, right, it's treatment resistant depression, treatment resistant, it's severe PTSD. That's, that's all part of getting around regulators and getting emergency status for, for approvals and so on. That's what I suggest in terms of the real practicalities of it. And just be aware, like all of your listeners are really wanting to learn. They're, they wouldn't be listening to this conversation if they didn't want to learn, if they weren't keen to understand what's going on. Right. Use your judgment. Use your judgment and don't assume because somebody's enthusiastic, because they have a really positive story to tell, that that's all the explanation you need. I'm sure, Greg, many, many of your interviews, people will have lots of positive claims. Yeah. And they have. And like I said, in some ways, I'm a bit of a convert, but also the professional side of me is thinking, well, there's probably two parts here that should be discussed. And that's why I reached out to you <laughs> regarding this, because there's in addition to uh, the episodes regarding ayahuasca and psilocybin, there's a lot of discussion about reality in general. There's a few things coming up that we'll have you back on the show for. Dr. Robert Shepard, thank you so much for coming on the show today and providing us this information. You're welcome, Greg. It's been a pleasure. Dr. Robert Shepard, again, another reason why we love having him on the show. And I just have one mm -hmm. thing to say. I love you, man. <laughs> I love you, man. And you know what? That really rings true for me, Rob, because you're not under the influence of alcohol or drugs when you're saying that. I love you too, man. I, I really appreciate the, uh, the good doctor's uh, yes. candor, though. Like, for example, he was, uh, he was talking about some of his friends doing a drop of acid. We have friends stuff that like drop this. acid. Sure. Well, yeah, yeah. But I'm just, I just thought this coming from a doctor, uh, this, and this is one of the reasons I love having him on the show because he's a straight shooter, but he, he has this uh, natural ability to look at things from both sides of the fence. And I have to admit, after hearing the uh, Dr. Robert Shepard today, I'm still yep. on the fence, yep. like, and I, I'm skeptical. Okay. I, I, I am. When, when we had the interview with Alice Grasset, I got the sense that you were mm -hmm. moving away from being a skeptic about the use of psychedelics to, well, like, hey, maybe this is real. Maybe I'm a believer, but you've changed now. Basically because of what uh, Dr. Robert said today. I mean, um, I'm uh, I'm st I'm still on the fence, but uh, you 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 know you you called it exactly right after the Alice interview. 
I was leaning going, yeah, maybe this is a good thing. But then with some of the stuff Robert talked about today, again, it puts me right up there on the fence yeah. post. And I don't know, I don't know which I way. I thought it really lead. interesting when I asked him about um, delusion. You know, mm-hmm. is he saying that the people that we interviewed and people in general that use psychedelics or, you know, uh, psychedelic assisted therapy are just hallucinating? And that's kind of what he's saying. He's kind of saying that you, you can't deny their strong feelings about their experience. But the reality is, is that anybody would have uh, hallucinations in these cases that don't really mean much. The other yep. interesting thing, too, is the risks involved. I never thought about it, but it kind of makes sense. If if someone is given a drug, let's say ketamine, which is an anesthetic, okay, and ketamine might be legalized this year, given ketamine, they dissociate. They are not connected to their body, more or less, right? They're in what they call a K-hole. Is that a safe place to be with the therapist, being not present. These people are trained in the use of psychedelics, but let's say they are of the side that the person is going to have a mystical spiritual experience. Okay. That's their expectation. How do we know that they aren't imposing that experience upon the person? And that's what they have because that's what the therapist has led them to. That occurred to me as well. Offering the suggestion that this is going to happen to you. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Asking yeah. the question, are, are you having any experiences that are meeting God-like people? Like even that question may influence their experience. In a lot of ways, there are, there are risks in many different areas. But you know what I got from him overall as a therapist, Rob, is there isn't enough research done. Not yet. And we're going very, very fast. As he said, the horse is out of the barn and now thinking about it, I believe he's right. Not, not to say I don't believe in this, not to say I don't believe in Drew Banke or Alice Grasset. I'm saying that, and it's been said by many people, there really needs to be more time to do more research, proper research that, as he said, includes things like a, a control group and a, and a study group to analyze placebo effect. But there needs to be more information, basically. We need more information about how these are going to be used in the future. I think the money thing is getting in the way, and that's kind of pushing it forward way too quickly. And that's what's scaring the doctor, Mm -hmm. too. Dr. Roberts said that, you know, it it deals with big money. And as you said, things are going a little too fast right now. Mm -hmm. And you're right. We should maybe sit down and have more studies and figure this thing out. Uh, rather than all of a sudden just giving it the rubber stamp Mm -hmm. and away she Mm -hmm. goes. If someone asked you to be in a study, I mean, you would have the opportunity to take your skepticism into a study. Would you agree to go in a study regarding these, these drugs? Are we talking free drugs here? Well, yeah, of course. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I don't honestly, these drugs don't get you high. I'm always looking for the free drugs. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I, um, would I be a, a good candidate would for that? Would you want to? No, not, not, not necessarily a good candidate. No. Is that would you, because you're, you're a bit of a skeptic, and I think there's a need for that. Because as he's saying, there's a lot of people that are recruited for these studies that have experienced these drugs on their own, 
They have a preconceived notion of what to expect. And they're going in wanting the, they're wanting the drug to make a change in their lives. Here you are more of a skeptic than you've, that you've ever been really so far. Would you be willing to go in as a skeptic? Yeah, I would. Uh, Hopefully to prove my point. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And, uh, but then again, I'm going in there being the skeptic where I'm not allowing it just to happen. I've already got some preconceived notions. Preconceived things. The same same way. Yeah. That's interesting. So you probably would be influenced by what you believe already. Uh, We're going to pick a couple subjects as we did with psychedelics and have him come back and uh, discuss from his point of view. Um, Rob, I have no idea where I'm going. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. A reminder for people too, so that when we have the good doctor on here again, if there's anything that you'd like us to cover here on the podcast, send us a note. Absolutely. We, we'd love to hear from you. If you found this episode interesting and helpful and you liked it, please give us five stars and maybe a review. We'd like that. We would. So please do. Mind Body Matters is a great media podcast, and we'll be back again next week. Meanwhile, be kind to yourself. And most <laughs> importantly, be well. I love you too, man. <laughs> Thanks for listening. And if there's a topic that you'd like to hear about, drop us a line at mb-matters.com. Be sure to like and follow us on all our socials. And if you like what you hear, hit subscribe or follow and share with your friends 